Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Hello and welcome to another slick as fuck edition of Camp Covid Fan Club. Um, this is Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. My name is Nick Helm and I'm joined by my host... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf's. Oh, fan club! Um, my, my name, I've got to just get back straight into my name's Nick. I mean, I don't know how to do this. No. Do you reckon there's anyone listening that don't know who presents it now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, those are the sorts of questions that keep me up all night, Matt. <laughs> very, very, oh, oh, it's been a, what a week. It is a week, isn't it? What a week. Oh, crikey. It's too much, isn't it, now? Yeah, but, you know, it's, 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 we keep it light. But yeah, I mean, this isn't... This, yeah, this isn't a... I don't think anyone... Our listeners... Anyone's here for news? Yeah, no one's listening for news updates. I don't think anyone would uh, really uh, appreciate <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a hot take on world events... Uh, <laughs> During this show, so um, yeah, just to know, awful. It is what a what a what a world. It's almost like it, it feels like it's bad already. Can we just stop now? Can we just have a bit of a pause now and uh, uh, and just let let us try and recover a bit? Just one thing at a time, guys. One thing at a time, please. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's awful. Anyway, so, um, what have you, <laughs> first rule of fan club, tell your friends about <laughs> fan club, um, uh, second rule of fan club, please, for the love of God, tell, tell, tell your friends about, tell your friends about fan club, isn't it? Um, now more than ever. Now, now more than ever. Um, so, okay, right. So we've just had a huge technical issue where Zoom decided to reinstall on my computer uh, 15 times, uh, sending me a new password update every single time. Uh, but I'm in, and I'm happy to be here, and we are off. We don't want to burden you with any of the technical issues that get behind us each week, but every week there is something technical that will happen that will mean that uh, it is... Uh, we're biting our fingernails right up until... We're just trying to do a show. That's all. We're trying to do our best. Difficult circumstances. We're doing this all from our own homes. We just don't really have the infrastructure that they might have at FUBAR, uh, the FUBAR studios with all their their technical wizards. And their earmuffs. Yeah, big ear. We don't got any big earmuffs like we used to do. I miss those earmuffs. Yeah, uh, uh, we haven't got big microphones. This is just from the one that's on my computer. Uh, we haven't got people bringing us cups of tea during the show. Uh, I think I miss that the most. Yeah. I used to have a green tea and I used to have a tea or coffee, depending on my whims. I never had a green tea. Did you not have a green tea? I hate green tea. All right. What was it? Like a uh, some sort of fennel tea or something? It was like a herbal tea, an herbal tea, wasn't it? It was chamomile tea. Chamomile tea, yeah. Yeah, I miss those days. 
It's so, it feels like such a long time ago, Nat, doesn't it? That you've, yeah. you're forgetting more than you remember. <laughs> and we were there getting getting <laughs> tea every every week. We we're like the worst excesses of Chris Evans and Radio One. People running after us, bringing us. Uh, <laughs> it was he was mad. We were. It was there were heady days, weren't they? I wouldn't, I don't, I don't even drink tea. I don't drink tea at all for the rest of the year, but uh, for the rest of the week. And then every week I would uh, stock up on as much chamomile tea as I could possibly drink. Uh, running for a piss. Uh, every time we play a song, there would be overflowing with piss. Yeah. I was back at Fubar. And now when I'm in my own home. I barely manage a dribble. Barely, barely be bothered to get up from my wipe clean sofa. Just think, what's the point? Who am I showing off for? No one. Just sit in the filth. We used to go to Nisa sometimes when we used to go to Nisa. I, I, I mean, when I lived on the other side of Nisa, I used to go to Nisa all the time. And then when I moved and, uh, and I was on the other side of Nisa, I mean, oh my goodness me. I never went to Nisa again. Never looked back. Never thought about Nisa. But I feel like those Nisa days. Do you know what I got reminded of uh, on Facebook the other day? It said, uh, "This is a memory from two years ago," and it was me, you, and Haley Campbell on uh, Fubar. Oh yeah, I did see that. Did We've see had that. our second anniversary. Oh, we've gone through it. So it's probably this week. Maybe this is it. No, because who was our first guest? Jack Barry, Joel Domit was our first guest. And it wasn't Jack, it was Jack Barry, wasn't it? Obviously portrayed by Jack Barry. <laughs> and uh, so was Haley our second guest? Yeah, I think so. I think so. so. Maybe we've just gone over two years. So we need to reset. This is our third season now. Phase three. We're like the Marvel Universe. This is the first one of the new uh, the new look. We're setting we're sowing all the seeds in this one that will be uh, that we'll be picking up in future future episodes. Even though we have started very nostalgically. No. Looking towards the future. I think that's wrong. I think phase three in Marvel is where it all starts paying off. Oh, is it? And it starts We're getting really good. Get our, get our act together now. Yeah, this is when this is when we actually have to, you know, but we've got a year, and then at the end of phase three, that's when, you know, we can kind of like um, all get killed and, 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 um, and come back as holograms in phase four, because they realise... They haven't got any characters that people want to see. Yeah. Um, and are we now worth lots more money as uh, the protagonists? Are we now, we're now getting paid like $50 million to do this every week and things. Is that right? No. Nah. No. Nah. Nah. With inflation, I guess we're worse off. No. There's, with inflation, yeah, we are worse off because everything else goes up in price except no. for us. <laughs> we are. Doesn't matter. Let's not talk about it. Right. What have you? What, what have you? What have you been? What have you, uh, before we get into what have you been uh, watching and stuff like that, what have you been a? Uh, what have you been doing this week? God, How's your cycling going? How's your cycling going, Nathaniel? Still doing it. Still doing it every day. Popping out, trying yeah. to do distances. Trying not to be afraid of. Uh, cars and being afraid of parked cars in case they might just pop out at any moment and try and run me over well i would say never don't be afraid of cars yeah good advice good, good advice um been doing a bit of that i've been tidying up i've been uh going through clothes i filled up two bin bags full of old clothes that i never wear 
Um, there's no charity shops open, are there? So I've just now got bin bags in my room <laughs> instead of piles of clothes and things. So just replaced different bits of rubbish. But now it looks even more like rubbish because they're in bin bags. I just think that, that is, that's basically what living in your house without leaving is, basically. You turn into like a uh, recycling sorting plant. Like I do my rubbish. I take, go down and take like bags of rubbish down to the um, bins in my flats. And then I come back upstairs and I make dinner. And then I've just got loads of rubbish again. And it's just sort of like, it feels like my whole life now is washing clothes, hanging <laughs> clothes up, then putting the, putting the clothes horse away because it halves the size of my flat. Then, <laughs> uh, then washing more clothes, getting the clothes horse out again, taking recycling down, recycling the glasses and the cans and the, and the bottles and then getting rid of the rubbish, and then I come back in my flat, I get one, like, delivery through the post, open it all up, my flat is a shithole again, and it's just like, but it's perpetual, it's just perpetual, there's never a moment when my flat isn't just covered in shit. And You're even, right. I think actually just tidying up almost makes it worse, because you go, oh, I've done it, and it's, it's sort of tidy for about ten minutes. And if you just leave it forever, it's sort of fine, like... It maybe looks good for like half an hour, and then as soon as I do anything, um, like I moved my uh, I moved my I moved my living room around a bit um, at the weekend, and uh, I mean I meant I meant to move it back by now, but I just can't be I can't be bothered. I'm just I'm just looking for I'm looking for kind of like a constant. No, do you know what I mean? It's just like that's what my living room looks like. That's what my bedroom looks like. Yeah. That's what that room looks like. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, and, I, and it never is. It's just always, always a shithole, no matter what I do. And for fuck's sake, I do like being in my flat, but oh, I just can't wait for the point where you can just leave and then get a bit of rubbish and put it in a bin and it not have to have like a resting period of three weeks in your own flat. I think as well, staying in just means that you accumulate more rubbish just because it's like I feel like you'd be out more, but it just feels like you just got bins filling up. And I feel like I'm constantly washing up and doing various things. It just feels like I didn't do this much before. Didn't used to take up like a third of my day doing this. But it does feel like that's all I do. If, it doesn't, if it doesn't take up a third of your day, then you are just living in filth. Yeah. Which is what I do. Because I refuse to spend a third of my time tidying up. At I mean, it's just like you just don't go. I just, I just know that you, t you, know, you like, have a drink and then you put a glass down, and then you have to say to yourself, "If I don't do it now, I'm going to have to do it later." I know that's part of being an adult, but it's just fucking never fucking ending. It's never ending. Oh God. Just makes me want to get everything I own and throw it all out the fucking, not just out the fucking window. Just, you know, like some sort of 1980s music video where it's just all tumbling down from a balcony onto the streets below. And I just hate it. Hate it. If it was the 1980s, though, and like loads of like DVDs and things were falling from a window, they wouldn't even know what they were. They wouldn't know what DVDs are. 
the 1980s. Be futuristic. You say there's a film on that, they wouldn't believe it. Couldn't even comprehend it. When I when I did that, um, when I I filmed an IKEA advert in 2010, and um, what the the advert was, um, uh, we filmed it in Poland, and the advert was uh, advertising a storage unit in IKEA, and it's so the storage unit is so good that I get home and my girlfriend is throwing all my stuff out the window, and she's throwing them all out, and like those are the jeans. Those are, and it's like, you know, those are the t-shirts, these are the socks, these are the shoes. Do you know what I mean? It was all like in, in categories because it was such a good piece of storage. And then right at the end, she starts throwing CDs at me. And then that's the joke. It's like me going, oh boy, now it's the CDs. And then me running off. But because there was no health and safety, they literally just ninja starred these CDs at my head. And they exploded on all the cars behind me. And I literally had to sort of like run for cover in real life. What, what <laughs> country was that ad shown in? I think it was, I think it was Poland. I think they, I think, yeah, it must have been Poland because they read, um, because I had to learn Polish, but, um, uh, for the thing. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I've gone into that advert before on this, but, That's um. weird that they don't just use someone from Poland, right? Yeah, I thought it was weird when they flew me over there and then didn't tell me I had to speak Polish. I, the only reason that I ended up speaking Polish was because I overheard that I had to speak Polish and I said, can somebody write it out phonetically for me? Oh, all of my auditions were in English. And then they fly you out there, give you like a, a five-star hotel. You're there for, I was there for like 20 hours and it, do a costume fitting the night before go to bed, wake up first thing in the morning, it's minus 10, it was like, it was, oh, no, it's minus whatever, but there was 10 feet of snow, and I was wearing like a, uh, like a t-shirt and a, and a linen jacket, <laughs> and um, it's just the worst, and um, it was, it was so cold, and um, uh, uh, yeah, so you're out there, but like, at no point did anyone say, oh, by the way, um, can you speak Polish? And I was like, if they had, I'd have said no. So it's literally half an hour before, or maybe it was the night before in the costume fitting, I found out that um, I overheard a conversation saying that I'd be speaking Polish. And I was just like, whoa, 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 I'm going to be speaking Polish. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know any. <laughs> oh, and you also just have like, a really bad accent because you've just learned it. Well, I'm also pretty sure that if I had learned any Polish, None of the Polish I would have learned would have been usable in an advert. Mm. <laughs> it's just been all swear words. Yeah, randomly. Like, maybe you have to get somewhere approximating what those words will look like, and then someone comes in from Poland and overdubs you. But again, it does feel like a lot of effort to have you in the advert. Just get a Polish person to do it. Mm. I, I, I honestly don't understand. Because it would have cost money to put me up in a hotel could have cost money to uh, fly me over and like everything would have cost money I just couldn't I couldn't I still don't understand I, don't get it. I still don't understand it and um, it's, oh, like yeah. it's like Armageddon isn't it yeah. yeah it's easier to teach an oil driller to fly into space than it is to, to teach an astronaut how to drill oil you know it's easier to teach um, an actor 
to speak Polish than it is to teach a, a local man to be one of the finest actors of his generation. Ale kochania! Mishka! It wasn't like people in Poland. You haven't got a massive fan base in Poland that they were using to... I do now. Oh, yeah, from the ad. Yeah, from the ad. Every time we go down the street, everyone throws CDs and shit at me. It's great. <laughs> but that, was, that happened before the ad as well, didn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, synergy. I, th- I can't... It's probably why I got hired, to be right. fair. I guess that makes sense, yeah, yeah. He's the guy! He's the guy! <laughs> no, it's so weird. It happens in places where... The ad wasn't shown as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not just CDs. It's normally just like great handfuls of human feces that just slapped at me. Um, I guess it's probably what you were known for, and therefore they hired you. They sent you to. Yeah, I can't quite work it. I can't quite can't quite work it out. What came first, the IKEA advert or the or the social hatred? Um, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, but it was weird. It was, it was really weird. But, yeah, that's, but, but literally they were like, <laughs> this, this man up a ladder behind the camera just had, like, a stack of CDs <laughs> that he would whip at me. <laughs> <laughs> and they would explode on the cars behind me, and I was literally, like, going, what the fuck? And then I jumped out of the way, and then they were all like, yep, that's a wrap on Nick. And then everyone moved in, inside, and I was left on my own outside. And I was like, do I just, I'll just, oh, I'll, <laughs> I'll go. And I got in the car and went to the airport, and no one said goodbye. <laughs> crazy. One of the weirdest jobs ever. And it didn't pay that well either. But that, there you go. That was right when, that's right when everything was happening as well, right? You're getting, you're doing well in... Edinburgh and things at that point? I think, um, yeah, 2007. So I did an advert just for Edinburgh, which paid off my um, credit card bill uh, and my overdraft and everything like that. Um, And then I did Edinburgh. Uh, That Edinburgh was the one where, um, uh, at that point in my career, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't afford any shoes or anything like that. And then that Edinburgh was the one that Jimmy Carr came to and uh, Daniel Kitson and uh, Canton again. And then um, uh, and then uh, they put me on Russell Hours Good News. And I think uh, after, maybe maybe it was after I filmed Russell Hours Good News, I went off to do this IKEA advert. And then after that, I never did any more adverts, I don't think. I don't think. There you go. There we go. Uh, I was a big fan of your uh, your special you put out on Saturday, Nick. Uh, yeah, good. Thank you. I forgot to mention it last week. I should have mentioned it last week, really. It would have been a little bit... I'm not sure how many people we get listening to this live and how many people just listen to it as podcasts, but... Um, it's available think... now, though, right? You can get it... Can you get it downloaded? Yeah, we just, we just launched it last week. Last Saturday was sort of like... It's difficult because, you know, um, I think... I think... A lot of what's happening at the moment is that uh, uh, we we creatives feel like we're under a lot of pressure to produce a lot of content during during the thing, um, and I don't I don't really 
I don't really understand. Yeah, I, I, can, I can completely understand that. Though, isn't there, that people think you've gone away otherwise. And so you need to kind of, if you're, if you're reliant on live work or live work is one of your big things, I think everyone feels a kind of pressure to do things to show that you're not going to be going away for six months or invisible. Um, especially on social media, I think that's what it's there for. I think that's the same way that people used to, you know, you'd have some comics that used to tweet about every gig they're doing. But often yeah. it's not really even promotion. It's just to kind of, a lot of it just seems to be to say that you're doing it to so show you think, that you're busy and working. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really, I, I, I mean, I, I get it. I do get it. But I also think that, um, uh, I think at the moment, uh, online content is sort of like, uh, well, for instance, so this this special that I released, I recorded it four years ago, uh, and and uh, I was unhappy with my performance on the night, um, and it took me a long time to sort of like get around to watching it, and then um, that before I mean the show itself was my uh, was the launch for my second album. So the show's called All Killer, Some Filler, right? So the story behind the show is, but this is also sort of like me trying to explain uh, how online content works, right? Is that, um, is that uh, I, did a, I did a second album launch. I'd done, uh, I think I'd done the first series of Uncle, or maybe the first two series of Uncle. I'd done Heavy Entertainment at that point. Uh, I'd done my second album. I think we were just about to start filming the third series of Uncle. And so rather than kind of like uh, just release the album, I did like a big al album launch at the uh, uh, O2 Kentish Town Forum. And on the night, there was like a technical problem that happened right at the beginning of the show, which derailed the show for like the first seven minutes. But then also, you can see in the footage that basically the time between the show um, fucking up uh, and then they fixed the problem but that nobody takes like a minute on stage to, or a moment on stage to go, oh, okay, we've fixed, let's go, right? There's none of that. Literally, the, the problem gets fixed and then the show starts straight away. Nobody says to me, like, like the, the show was planned that the music would start, I'd come out and the show would begin. But what happens is there's a technical sound problem, which means that all of the sound cuts out and I have, except for... Um, with a laptop, basically, that all of the uh, cues are being fired off, the music cues are being fired off, that, that, that shuts down, right? So all the guitars are still working, the microphones are still working, but there's no, there's no sound cues to keep all the band together, right? Uh, so the band are live, but you play like, uh, uh, tracks to fill out the sound a bit, right? Yeah. Everyone does this, right? And um, so I'm off stage. I can't come on stage because... I haven't, I've got an, I've got an entrance. Uh, so I've got to basically fill for like five, six minutes off stage just by sort of like improvising, trying to, you know, and at that point I'm thinking, are we going to have to cancel the show? Um, is this, is this a permanent problem? Is this going to take an hour? Is this going to take half an hour? Uh, is this like irredeemable? Uh, is this like this huge embarrassment that we've, you know, packed out the, the uh, forum, but, you know, we're going to just have to send everyone away. You know, it's sort of like, or oh, does everyone have to go to the bar to get drinks? Or is everyone just going to sit there? Are people going to... So I'm just backstage just absolutely fucking having this 
panic attack, but at the same time I'm filling. So I'm just like commentating on what's happening on stage and talking off the top of my head. And it's sort of like, it's an absolute fucking nightmare because none of it's planned. And it's just me basically um, fighting for air and treading water and just trying to keep my head above uh, uh, water and just keep the show going without having any information passed to me whatsoever. Then all of a sudden the show starts. Right? This is just a little gig for you. So this, is, um, this, was like, this was like this huge, sort of like, it was a one-off gig as well, where we hadn't had enough rehearsal time. Um, the whole thing was an absolute fucking, well, the whole thing was sort of like, so I was uh, organising all my own costumes, which is, which is what you always do, but on something on this scale, it's just kind of like, I don't have like someone off, off stage going, uh, here's your, you know, not like going off and on and someone's dressing me or anything like that. It's kind of like I've got all my costumes there. I've like layered them all up so that each time I take off a layer, there's a new costume, you know. So you've got to sort of like reverse engineer all of that. Um, so it's, there's the costumes that we've got these uh, these uh, big screens that are having like images projected. So I'm sort of like trying to organise all of that. We've got the band rehearsals. Um, uh, I'm also finishing off the album and approving the album artwork and the and the artwork for the show. Like it's, it's like this three month endeavour where you're basically, or maybe it was, you know, the album took. A, do you know what I mean? It's just so much time and effort put into like all of these little details, and I'm basically the guy that's doing all of that. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then. Live Nation are really great at promoting it and, and selling it out and everything like that. But all of the details that you see on stage, they were kind of put together by me. And um, and so it's just this huge thing. And, then, and so you're completely stretched and spread thin. Because I think people think that there's infinite money and uh, a huge team that are sort of like uh, helping you. But even when we had something really complicated, like uh, when I did One Round Megamith, we had like an Evil Knievel stunt show set, right? That was sort of like really elaborate with these ramps and a giant ring of fire at the back with a projection screen in the middle and all of that. And I think everyone thinks that, oh, that's this huge team. Well, that was Sean Wiegand, my tech, and he built all of that in his garden. And then he and then he got a truck and he drove it up to Edinburgh and he put it... Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, that's the effort of two people that are working together that you do all this. I think that's part of what made those shows, those Edinburgh shows and that show, work so well. And made them sort of feel so novel and different was that they felt like massive shows, whereas the Edinburgh Festival is partly that you go into, essentially, a tiny black box that maybe holds between 50 and 150 people. And what you get is a very basic, like, no-tech... And there's that thing with stand-ups as well, isn't there, where people just talk about man and mic, and it often just is that. You've got this incredibly low-tech thing of someone just comes on, speaks into a microphone for an hour, and leaves. Whereas I think they were in an environment where you're so used to seeing that. Your shows were like sort of spectacles and big sort of visual kind of... And they were even like the smaller, the smaller end ones were like sort of big rock shows in that way that you would have like a sort of almost like Metallica show or a Alice Cooper show. You'd have lots going on. There was a big visual element and costume changes, and it was sort of big and showbiz at a time when that wasn't like that. And your typical show in Edinburgh was nothing like that. And I think because you're so used to people losing money that have no um, no bells and whistles at all, yeah. to go into a room 
that you know was probably once like a, a gym or something and see it kind of laid out with this proper kind of almost theatrical backdrop uh, with things on stage that you realise you're sitting down and seeing all these little items of things on stage that you know over the next hour all these items are going to be um, are going to be used by the people on stage and you had a live band and things. So it doesn't even look like a normal show in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is quite a small scale thing. And to walk out there, you'd be like, like you were just about to watch like a, a sort of West End musical or something. It was that sort of <laughs> high production values, right? It felt like, no, but I mean the staging. So you go out, you saw something like that. If you went to see a musical, you'd go out and you would see the set that the musical was going to be um, performed on. And it was a bit like that. When you walked into those rooms, and there were rooms you might even have been in that same day that would just be empty rooms with a mic in the middle. Yeah. That's what you'd have. But that's sort of... But part of the skill of stand-up is to transform, like, a black curtain and a microphone into an hour of entertainment. Mm. But then, what? Yeah. But what I always tried to do was I tried to sort of, like, add a little bit of showmanship and, um, and spectacle and, you know... Um, do something that was a bit different or not really I never really thought I was doing something that different I just thought this is sort of it was more like true to what I wanted to do mm. and I started off in theatre anyway but the point is that um, you do all of that and then on the night it goes badly uh, it doesn't go badly but the beginning fucks up, and I took a misstep at the beginning where I felt like I shouted for two hours, right? And uh, and then Chris at um, Code Faster Stroke was like, watch the, watch the film. And I was like, oh. So I watched the first three minutes, and I was so sort of like embarrassed by all the tech stuff and by my voice in the first song that I was just like, oh. And I couldn't watch it. And he would, like, once every six months, he would sort of like go, try and watch the show and I'd watch and, uh, and basically so four years later um covid happens you know the coronavirus happens and I've got like some time and I'm going through lots of my sort of like older shows going maybe I could release that as an audio file or maybe I could do something with that because I'm sort of like a completist and a comedy fan and I try and think about it in terms of what would my fans want my fans would probably want what I would want from, uh, like, my favourite comedians, which is kind of like, you know, a, a look at all of the archives, DVD commentaries, you know. Um, or, you, know you are someone that buys stuff like that. You will buy DVDs and special editions and the yeah. type things. It's difficult because I would never assume that that's what people want, but at the same time, you are trying to, like, go... But if I was a fan, what would I want? You know, so it's kind of like that difficult um, step between, you know, being modest and being an arsehole. You know, you're so modest that you're actually not giving anyone what they want and you're not actually helping yourself. So I, so I ended up watching the thing and watching the, the video that Chris made me watch. And I thought I was just sort of like, so sort of like, because there's so much time had passed. Um... I was sort of like a little bit overwhelmed by how 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 good it was on the night. The audience were incredible, and because the audience were incredible, I did a really good job. And it's just this—it was just like this perfect night. But it's also because it was a one-off, and there were fuck-ups. 
it's this time capsule of what happened on that evening rather than we performed this show 60 times and it's the slickest possible version it is and because it's so raw and it's rough around the edges it feels live you know it feels like a live event right so so it's taken like four years in the making two weeks of re-editing it you know putting together a trailer for it uh selling tickets raising awareness for it and basically the thing is you can just release it which is what's happening at the moment is uh, you know you release something tuesday morning and everyone's consumed it by tuesday lunchtime and looking for the next thing right and this is a this is a show that's four years in the making so the whole point of saturday was basically to like do this big announcement it's basically the whole point of the gig in the first place was to do a big concert to promote the album and then the whole point of Saturday, we do live intro and a Q&A around this album launch uh, concert is to do a big launch to promote now the fact that there's this DVD on sale. And I think that people get a bit confused thinking that the actual launch is the event. Mm. And the, la- the launch is just an awareness event so that people are now aware that they can buy the DVD, right? Or they can buy the download, right? And so as an example of how uh, uh, consumption works at the moment is you release it you do the q a and you go brilliant i finally released my first ever feature length kind of like special into the world and the very next thing people say is what are we doing next week you know <laughs> and you go oh yeah because they've watched it now and now what's next and it's just about kind of like oh and for me it was just kind of like well i i did that song contest thing and i did this so i'll probably might i might end up doing one other thing but i'm not going to do something every day because i think that it all gets lost and also you know i've been working for like three years on an album and it's not finished but when I, if I do finish it within the next three weeks, for instance, I probably wouldn't release it during now anyway. Yeah. Because it would just get lost and eaten up. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think you can over, you can worry too much about that stuff and just do stuff at your own pace. You know how hard you work and how much you produce. So it's not really, I don't think it really matters so much. Um, and that people who like it will wait for it, you know, they'll, they'll wait for whatever's next. It's but, not. Some, but some people are great at just cranking out content and like um you know billal that we had on uh a few weeks ago like five weeks ago he's just a uh, championship manager thing have you seen that yes yeah yeah it's, it's really funny like, and he does that every week and then he's starting up doing the acting thing again uh the acting classes um but he's doing it on zoom so he's like producing like two things a week and then um and there's people like katie pritchard who was in uh i think you stink uh with me and uh she's sort of like writes a song a week and does like a music video week and then she does like i, I can't even keep track on how many concerts she does she does like a wednesday thing and a saturday thing and um and so there's people that are really sort of like embracing that technology and sort of like treating it like okay right this is an income and they're sort of like monetizing it which is great uh, and um i don't know if i'm i think that there's different things for different people so i think i just want to sort of like do a little bit here and a little bit or just do something that's sort of like 
oh, I've worked really hard on this, so I'm going to release this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to release that. But they're sort of like a, a month apart or whatever. And then some people are doing quite a lot. But the way it works is that as soon as you watch something, you're always looking for the next thing. And I just find that sort of, um, yeah, it's crazy, really. Yeah, but also what you've just done is release something which is, you know, four years old and was the result of a lot of work. So it's now just a piece of work, right, that exists in the world, like a film or a piece of music anyway. So it's not, it's not quite the same thing, whereas I think a lot of what other people are doing now feels like, uh, not, I'm not referring to like uh, people specifically, but I mean there's a lot of sort of disposable content that's coming out of them in as well, right? Whereas what, what you've done is sort of produce these things which feel like they've got much more of a back end than they are these events that existed before the lockdown maybe and will continue to exist after it yeah maybe but I, th I think that also when you're creating something it, it's difficult to tell I think all entertainment has got a disposable element of it mm. that you know that exists for this moment and then we move on like TV kind of does work like that yeah. and you don't really know what's going to sort of like resonate and stick with you you know, something like Smell of Reeves and Mortimer, that could have quite easily been disposable. But it's it's a series that I think about all the time and I revisit quite a lot. And it was a huge influence on me. But that could have been lost to, like, 1991, you know? You're right. I think that's, that's something that's changed in the culture in the last few years where it seems weird. When I was growing up, you would have thought the thing that would stick around the longest would be something like... Um, sitcoms would get repeated all the time and they'd be had this sort of classic elements that could be shown multiple times and people had a relationship with them and now in the last few years i guess channels like dave have made things like panel shows are things that get repeated all the time yet a lot of those things in the 90s and early 2000s would have been made with this eye to the people making them thinking well this will be on once and that'll be it they show you know they, they show things like mock the week from exactly and, and it's topical, and, it, you, and it's kind of like, well, how has this got longevity? And uh, all they do is they put the date, well, have I got news for you? They say, this is the date it was recorded, and then you go, that's all the context people need for repeated content. Yeah. But I also think that, um, that uh, let's, for, for instance, going back to Reeves and Mortimer, you could go, what's, what's the equivalent of that? And will we ever have anything like that ever again? And sort of like an equivalent of that is uh, something like maybe, maybe not an equivalent of that, but a modern day version of popular entertainment is something like Tiger King, where everybody watches it, but it's like a flash fire, mm. you know, where everybody watches it, and it's consumed, and then we move on very quickly. And it's had this huge cultural impact, but I don't know whether it's got a long-standing cultural impact. No, I think something like Tiger King is just replacing what would have been, you know, it's it's almost like it's now possible to have that water cooler moment of people would have had with broadcast TV 10 years ago, and they're now managing to have it on something like a streaming platform because everyone talks about it on social media so much that everyone watches it at the same time. But I don't think it's a strong enough documentary that people are going to watch it again or multiple times. But also, you know, can you imagine like, anyone going dressed as uh, Joe Exotic for Halloween? It's kind of like... Yeah, but it's sort of like... it's. Uh, I remember when I was at university, 
maybe in the second year, people were dressing up as Austin Powers going, groovy, baby. And you <laughs> go, I mean, it was, I mean, but that was, no, that's slightly different. That was a case of, well, is it different? That was a case of kind of like, um, the first one was like a cult hit. And then the second one was this huge sort of blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And, and then when it became, when it entered into the mainstream, it was just kind of like, it was oversaturated, you know. Uh, you mean really? I, know. I just think that I just think that even now, so, well, even now, mentioning Tiger King feels woefully out of date, you know. Yeah, yeah, it does. Do you mean Reason Mortimer has been something that felt like? Because I guess that wasn't like a massive, massive hit, but it was a cult hit, and I think the people that watched it really loved it. But they were like, I think even when did Channel Five happen? We had four channels. Yeah. So it yeah. was a hit. It was a huge hit. And anything anything that went on BBC Two on a Thursday or a Friday night was something that you talked about on Monday at school. Um, and, and maybe I'm just sort of like, maybe it's roasted. Maybe I'm just talking about my specific, um, uh, yeah. my yeah, my specific experience. But I, I feel like that sort of stuff, you would really, you would release it's just weird the way people consume things is so different because you would release an episode and you would talk about that one episode for an entire week and then another episode would come out and then you talk about that episode for an entire week and then another episode would come out you talk about that episode for an entire week and then eventually the series would happen and you would talk about uh you would and you would talk about the series for years and years like what a classic series and now it's like a series will come out, you'll watch it all in one afternoon, you'll tweet about it, and then you'll move on to the next thing. And you'll forget about the series, whether the series ever existed. And uh, it's just kind of weird. Right, we're going to... Uh, I've just been reminded that it's uh, head muff, uh, headphones, not earmuffs. Chamomile tea, Jack Barry, was 25th of May 2018. So we have had our one-year anim- two-year anniversary. Uh, I can't believe it's been two years. Absolutely fucking mental. Uh, right, gonna play Alice Cooper song and then we're gonna move on and do fan mail. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We are back. That was Alice Cooper. Oh, we're back. We're back. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, like, that, was, that, was a, that was a very psychedelic-y, Alice Cooper-y. It's different every week, isn't it? I'm, I mean, he's uh, eclectic. He certainly is. But what I, that from? I can't remember. What's the name of the song? <laughs> uh, Hard-Hearted Alice. Oh, that's from uh, Muscle of Love. That's a good, I think that's a good album. That was the album that broke the band up. But um, I thought, I think it's a good album. Comes in a cardboard box with stains all over it. It's good. <laughs> uh, it says, contains one muscle of love. Um, <laughs> um, so, what have, yeah, but anyway, so uh, thank you for watching my show. And uh, yeah, really. I thought it was great. I really would recommend, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like we've set this up. But I, I, I loved it. I thought it was terrific. And I think it's a really good record of the kind of shows you do. And I sort of wish in hindsight that you'd done it, that it'd come out four years ago. It feels like, oh, it feels like a really nice kind of time capsule of all those kind of big shows you're doing. Yeah, but I'm sort of glad that I did it now because, um, uh, 
it, I, I think, yeah, I, I forgot that I could do that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, thank you. And thanks everyone that watched it. And if you haven't watched it, watch it for fuck's sake. What are you waiting for? Let me pause this. Um, so what have you been a fan of this week, Nat? Seen a few bits and bobs. I saw, um, I'll tell you what, I was a fan of last week, actually. Um, and I was disappointed it wasn't on on Monday. Was that Monday before last, BBC4 showed the first two episodes of All Creatures Great and Small. And <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It was so, I was like, I didn't even mean to watch it. It was like, it was like oh yeah, this is All Creatures Great and Small. And I watched this for a minute. Got so sucked in. And I thought they were going to be showing them every Monday. It wasn't on this week. Why did they do that then? I don't know, they've just shown two episodes at random. Because this is what you believe that they should be doing at the moment. This, this is all you want to see now. You just want to see James Herriot walking around uh, the Yorkshire Dales with uh, where he's, he's probably getting something a bit wrong. So he's just, he's only learning to be a vet, so he might get something a bit wrong. Then hopefully at the end he tries his best and the Yorkshire farmer says something like, you're all right actually, Mr. Idiot. And it's sort of a bit nice, and he perhaps feeds a lamb with like a a, a little bottle or something. It and he put this on all the time. Such a comforting series. Yeah, it really is. It's really nice. <laughs> do you remember? Uh, I just uh, what? Do you know what year it was? I think I looked at. I think it's. Oh, was it seventy eight or seventy nine? But I think it goes right into the mid. I remember it when I was a kid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was named after. Um, what's he called? Uh, Peter Davison's character. Tristan. Tristan. That's my middle name. Is Tristan Nicholas Tristan Philip Helm, ah. named after Peter Davison. Uh, yeah. And I told him, I, I did a thing with him once, and I told him, um, I said, you're my, you're my favourite doctor. And Peter Capaldi was stood a foot next to him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, yeah, so I remember um, All Creatures Get Small, I loved it. Those actors were all fantastic. Uh, the guy that played Siegfried, what was his name? Robert Hardy. Robert Hardy. Yeah, a really great actor. Like, and, and it's, it's, like, it's one of those funny things where you think, I mean, again, it just feels like you're being needlessly nostalgic, but you're going, God, they're all good on this. And they're all, like, really putting a, putting a shift in, all the actors. And because it's a period series, does it feel like it's ageless? Yeah, I think so, yeah, because I guess it's just pre... Yeah, it, just, it doesn't feel from any kind of era. And, like, when it was saying... I think of it as, like, an 80s show, and that's late 70s, but it does have that... Yeah, because I guess even at the time, it's sort of just set pre-war, so I think it's, like, got that sort of yeah very timeless quality really nice do you remember the other veterinary series called one by one mm. it was set at the zoo and there was a vet at the zoo. was it one by one or two by two i think it was one by one or two by two two by two makes sense wouldn't it as i like noah's arky thing yeah but i think one by one is sort of like a reference to a noah's art thing but one by one, maybe it was two by two i don't remember either it wasn't four by four that's a plank of wood <laughs> I think it was, I don't know, I think it was two by two maybe then. It's about a guy, I just always remember there was one, he had curly hair and a beard, and there was one episode where there was some sort of protester that climbed into the tiger cage, and they found their bloody remains in the morning. It was one by one, it was one by one. Um, and uh, who was, the, what was the name of the actor in it? Do, can you, do you know Natalie? Um yeah, and they found his bloody remains. I just remember there being like a close-up of a bloody severed hand, Rob Hayland, a bloody severed hand in the foreground of the shot as they approached, like something out of Jaws. 
I was going to say that wouldn't happen on all creatures great and small. It just get hand. It was a, it was a very dark episode, and uh, and I just remember it gave me nightmares. I must have been about four years old. An arm covered in cow shit, maybe, but not not covered in blood. Not covered in blood. Well, depends. And you also saw a film called Villain. I watched Villain the other night, which was really good. It's like a, a Richard Burton film. I'd never seen it before, but like it's one of those things I hear a lot about. It's 1971 and it's kind of based on based on the craze, but they, they obviously it's too close to it and they don't want to align it with the craze. So they have this character called Vic Dakin, who's basically both Cray twins like put together as one sort of avatar for them. Um, it's really, and, that's Rich, and that's Richard Burton. Yeah, Richard Burton playing like a Cockney gangster. Is it good? I loved it. I thought it was really great. He good, isn't it? Oh, he's good. Yeah, he, he can't quite do the accent, but what he comes out with is like what's obviously meant to be a Cockney accent is this sort of quite odd accent. He's got this sort of almost like you can hear the sort of Welsh in it, but it just makes it sound really odd and unusual. It's right. a bit like Tom Hardy does voices, and you go, "Where's he meant to be from?" <laughs> <laughs> like that sure well tom hardy was welsh in uh was it lock oh was he was he welsh in that he does this really weird sort of like broad welsh accent in lock which uh i just thought that was such an incredible film i haven't and seen it people hate it but i just think it's really i think it's they've literally gone <laughs> what is the most boring What's the most boring thing that we can make a film about? And they've gone, is it cement drying? Yeah. Let's make a, let's make a action thriller about cement drying. <laughs> and then they do. And he's in a car and he's basically uh, overseeing a, a cement contract as they're pouring cement on a, on a building while he's in a car trying to get somewhere else. And the whole thing is him trying to sort of like talk to the contractors over the phone Going, don't pour it yet. Don't pour it yet, boy. Don't pour it yet. Because if that cement dries, then it'll crack. And it'll crack all of our lives into smithereen. Because it's a metaphor. And it's just like, it's kind of like, it's this really weird, bizarre, not quite Welsh accent. And it's, it's genuinely tense. But it is literally two hours in a car listening to a man telling other people how to pour cement. It's fucking insane. But, uh, and it can only be like a bet that went wrong, which is sort of like, um, you know, I dare you to make a film about the most boring thing in the world. Yeah, it probably did sound like that. I, I, it must have been. I think it, was, I think it would have been like a, an artistic challenge. They would have gone, we're going to challenge ourselves by making a thriller that is really tense and interesting, and it'll have one location, which is a car, and uh, it will be about it will be about uh, cement. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting, um, right? Uh, so, should we do some fan mail? I, I can't work out what time we're meant to be on. What time are we on? We're, I think we should be about. This should be about five minutes. Well, we've got five five minutes. Five minutes. Right. 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 Okay. So here's our fan mail. Uh, play the music. Uh, Natalia, hi guys. I've been in lockdown for thirteen weeks now. To be honest, miss some men of thing. Well, especially Miss Raymond. Do you like Penelope Wilton, Dexter? I love you Penelope Wilton. Love Penelope Wilton. I love Penelope Wilton. I think she's brilliant. 
Thanks for the message there, Dexter. Thanks. Sensational show, guys! <laughs> You're both wild stuff! A power of absolute snacks! I would like to have you for dinner at some point. If you had to eat each other, which bit would you start with? I think I'll start with your monkey nut toe. I think they would be delicious, and I'd pop a smatter of sea salt on them. Yummy, Nolan. Christopher oh, Nolan there. Got some interesting listeners. Uh, if I was, what, if we had to eat each other, where would we start? What's a monkey nut toe? I think it would be a little toe. Okay. I don't know. I've never heard that before. I think it's just uh, the ramblings of an insane cannibal. And is um, it to our show? I basically, uh, you know... I think all of the listeners to our show have cracked up and uh, they're no longer... Uh, uh, I mean, no, their, their opinions are no longer valid, basically. Right. They've all turned into dickheads. Hello, chaps. Um, if I was going to start with Nat, um, I don't know. Is it, would you get the worst bit out of the way first so that you could... It's difficult. This is... Um, I think I'd try and do, I'd try and keep you alive. Well, that sounds even worse. I was going to say, I'd try and keep you alive for as long as possible. That oh, mate. No, just end point. it. Just end it. If you, know, if you have to eat me, don't eat me while I'm alive. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, I would uh, just, if you, when you eat me, Nat, uh, as, as delicious as it might sound, uh, don't eat my liver. It will kill you. <laughs> Hello, chaps. Have you seen the film Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights? I thought it was a load of old pap, personally, but I miss dancing and I miss dirty stuff. Sadly, this film did not fulfil my needs or holes. And there are other, are there any other films you can suggest that would be just the ticket for those requirements? Stan in Ham. Uh, well, Stan, if you're in Ham, it sounds like you're fulfilling your own requirements right there, as it is. What I would say, what did I watch? Um... Uh, uh, nine and a half weeks is good. Is it though? Somebody recommended it to me, and it's been on my things to watch list. Um, I don't know. Um, I just think what for dancing. Do you know what? Not just change it quite quickly. Um, uh, just change quite quickly. Uh, there is actually a remake of Dirty Dancing that was kind of like a stage version. I think it was a stage musical or something like that. Uh, we'll do one more bit of fan mail, then we'll play a song, and then we'll get our guest on. Um, okay. Hello! Love your bloody show! Why is it so good, though? Nick, I enjoyed your sequined hot pants on Saturday night, and to be honest, I'd enjoy them any day or time. You have a pretty bum crack. I would like to explore it more. Are you on Tinder? Nah, I would also be up for seeing yours. Love you. And this show to the moon back. Satan. Oh, I th I'm worried about the people who listen to One me. more bit of fan mail and then we'll get the guest on. <laughs> Unlikely lads. Now the lockdown is slowly being lifted. I was wondering if you fancied going for a run in a forest. I really hate the jog, but I think it'd be better if it was accompanied by you whispering John Carpenter in my own calling me a cunt. Thanks, Bobo. You got that. I mean, we, we, you just download the... I mean, I stopped listening. I stopped... I stopped listening to what I was reading out halfway through because I'm just thinking ahead to what's happening next. But if you've had to go for a run in the forest... No, because that's what this is for. You download it and then you can... Go for a run. We'll always be in your ears, Bobo. We're always in your ears from now on. 
boy. We're yeah. always in your ears, Boba. <laughs> we'll always be with you. Uh, may the forest be with you. Yes. Ah, yes. All right, okay, cool, whatever. Um, I don't... Uh, it's difficult. It's a fine line between being a nerd and being an asshole. So, um, uh, we'll play a song now, and then we'll get our guest on. Yes. Yes! Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Ah, we're back and we're joined by the nation's favourite lexographer. Is that a word? No, uh, but lexicographer. But I love the nation's favourite. How many do you know? I've got this. I've got this. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, allow me to introduce to you uh, uh, the nation's favourite and mine favourite lexicographer, yeah, uh, Miss Susie Dent. Um, Hello. Uh, this is Susie, Susie Dent. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. You said you said lexographer isn't a word. It, I don't it, think so. Uh, uh, yeah. Enough? If you use it enough, oh, well, look, the thing that I always tell Countdown contestants when they try a, ro- a, a word that sounds completely ludicrous is, well, you know, it might have been around in the 16th century. I'm sure you'll find it in a historical dictionary. Uh, so I'm going to look it up just in case. Lexographer. If, if lexographer isn't a word, then why did I think that it was? Well, lexicographer is not exactly easy, is it? No, I'm afraid it is lexicographer all the way. Um, yeah, and etymologist is not easy either. Um, none of our lingo is... Etymology you know. is like the origin of the word, right? So that's yes. where the word comes from. So yes. what, is, what is the etymology of lexicography? Okay, that's a good one. That's a good one. It is, it's the sibling of lexicon, obviously. So um, it goes back to the Greek for a dictionary, lex- lexicon, a word book, and writer. So that's essentially what a lexicographer is, somebody who compiles dictionaries. And it was, I think it's 17th century, so that word has been around for um, 300, 400 years almost. Wow. Yeah. Do you ever get bored of uh, being asked about words? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm such a nerd. Um, No, I really don't. And the really sad thing is that wherever I'm going, I will uh, try and tell somebody about some word or other like I went out this morning and um it's it's been really hot recently right and then we've had rain today here anyway and I said to my eldest wow can you smell that petrichor I just love it and I then tweeted it and it was petrichor is that is that wonderful smell that you get from rain falling on hot earth and it's unique and there's nothing like it and I just love it and she just looked at me as if I was mad and then just went on to talk about something else and that's generally the response that I get from no, anyone who knows me well. I abs- I can absolutely uh, understand that. Um, right, so I'm really, really into films, right? Yes. And we did we do a family quiz every Saturday, right? Nice. Where I have to go away. Uh, we all go away. There's my mum and my dad, my sister and my brother-in-law, and uh, and me, right? Yeah. And we write we write ten questions each. And the first week we did it, I was the film round, but it turned out that overall I scored so low because I only know about films. And <laughs> that was the round I was in charge of, right? So okay. I said, we won't do it like that. Uh, we'll all pick something that isn't our favourite round. So I did literature last week. Yeah. And um, my dad did the film round. 
and he said, uh, nay, his question was, name any, uh, any director that directed any of the Jaws films, yeah? Right. So you could do that, could you? Spielberg, no? Yeah. Was it not? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, okay. without even thinking. Yeah. My mum didn't know. Okay. Which was sort of crazy, but the person that she, she listed was uh, Peter Benchley. <gasps> the writer. Who's the writer of... Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Well, it's sort of cool, but it's sort of like it's, it's, it's incredibly obscure compared to the fact that Steven Spielberg, directed, you know, the film overtook the book. Yeah. Loads of popularity. And she went straight to the guy that wrote the original, which is, which is crazy. I think I, she's got a good mind. Oh, yeah, sure. But she didn't know Steven Spielberg. Anyway, so what happened was um, everyone said Spielberg and then uh, I said uh, Junet Schwartz, right? <laughs> Because he directed Jaws 2. Very yeah? good. I would not have known that. Okay. Because I just thought everyone's going to say Spielberg. So I say, I think that the key to a great question is to, uh, if you don't know the answer, it's a bit of trivia and then you learn something. Yeah. Uh, or there's a bit of trivia in there so that you may, might be able to work it out. Yeah. But there was me and my, me and my sister. And I said, well, because you know, do, do you know what other, um, do you know what, do you want other films Junet Schwartz directed? And my sister said, no. And I said, well, he also directed Santa Claus the Movie <laughs> and Supergirl. Uh-huh. Which me and you both went to the cinema to see. And she looked at me like I was starting a fight. Uh, sure. And I was like, so some people hate facts. Or th yeah, I mean, I try and couch all my facts in like normal conversation so I've, I've given up i gave up a long time ago saying do you know where this word comes from because that's just immediate glaze um so i try and kind of sneak them in but even that doesn't work and i just you know the one thing that most of us when we grow up really wish is that we'd learned more from our parents or that we'd spoken to our grandparents more about their experiences and that kind of stuff right so i was just trying to instill that curiosity but there just isn't and that's the only only knowledge i can impart because my general knowledge is generally not great you but i do know about words you know what you know so i think yeah. it's naturally going to come out in things right so what's yeah what's something which is a stone cold obvious fact that you know and a word that you know just because other people don't know it it doesn't it doesn't take away from that no it's true but it's just trying to kind of share that delight and share that curiosity and and i mean obviously like people who are interested in words and when I've done my tour, which is a very unexpected thing for me to say, but, but I do this kind of show where I talk to people about words. I mean, they lap it up because they are there. They're purely there because they love words. And so that's, you know, ready-made audience. It's just trying to, it's, it's family, I think, basically. It comes down to my family just not being particularly interested. Um, but hey. But that's the thing, that's, that's, that's the thing about natural in. Uh, natural interests you know some people don't have like a strong interest in some things yes I always think that you know if my uh, I can I can just absorb information about films like dates and directors and stars and, and years and you know budget mm. I just absorb all this information without even trying and I've mm -hmm. always been able to and I just it was like if my brain was geared towards that and biology for instance you know, school would have been just incredibly, you know, it would have been a breeze, you know. 
Yeah, you're right. We pre-select, don't we? And that, it's the same with, you know, the classic of a, a boiler engineer trying to explain exactly what's wrong with your boiler for about 10 minutes. And you just you just think, I really don't want to know this. I just want you to fix it. It's the same thing. Um, but you, do you know Mark Kermode? He's one of my idols when it comes to film. I know, well, I've never, have I met him? I don't think I've met him. Oh. No, you know of him, obviously. You ought to be the wittertainment stand-in when they're on holiday. Yeah, I don't think, um, anyway, let's... <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> anyway, I didn't know about you and Phil, so I'm glad I did. Simon Mayo was there, and we were both very excited to see Simon oh, Mayo in, in front of us, a couple of rows. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. Yeah, we're, was it, it was Emma. We went to see Emma. Emma. Simon, Simon Mayer was sat two rows behind us, and then on the way out, I was just like, Simon Mayer? <laughs> but, uh, and, and Nat was like, no, it's not. <laughs> it was. And it actually was. Have you got any um, claims to fame like that, Susie? No, you just reminded me of a friend who saw <laughs> Meat Loaf, like two, two rows in front of him in a cinema, and went up and said, Mr. Loaf, please can I have your autograph? And he's never lived that down. Um, have I? Um, do you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite weird in that I, I don't really get um, starstruck. I think um, one of the reasons that I have kind of hopefully flown below the radar on countdown is that I don't it's lovely to meet people but you know it's they are they are people oh this sounds very true it just sounds like a rubbish cliche but they are they're just like you and me so I don't kind of think oh my god you know I am sitting next to whoever because for the most part they're completely unstarry and unpretentious and lovely I mean a few exceptions so I won't name here but um because I'm here no, I'm definitely, definitely not going to know. But I have, I've had goosebumps from sitting next to Ranulph Fines just because I'm obsessed with mountains, even though I've never really been up many and certainly never been, you know, mountaineering. But I just, my bookshelves are packed with mountaineering stories. I just love them. And so sitting there listening to him was, was amazing. But I'm trying to, yeah, they've not really stuck in my mind for that reason. Just amazing encounters. Maybe because I've not, really had many interesting because i would have thought like you've got that kind of prime spot as well because your dictionary corner in countdown so you get next to you know you have your sort of celebrity and you think you've been doing the show now since 1992 so yeah you must have had lots of people sat next to you i have and it's not that i don't admire them i am full of respect and admiration it's more that i don't kind of um I don't know. I don't know quite what it is. It's just that I don't. I don't kind of see them as these sort of starry, elusive figures because they are just, you know, lovely people who sit next to me for a day. I definitely have the best seat in the house in the best gig in the world. Um, but it wasn't just me from '92. So in '92 we were rotating. So there were other people who sat where I did, um, and I went full time. I think in about 2003, probably. But I still long period. But you're always the best one, Susie. Oh uh, no! I'm sure people really miss the others. <laughs> Well, I I doubt it. Um, I also think that I also think that maybe the um, the power shifts when you do dictionary corner, where all of us, it's not like you're meeting uh, people at their most confident and best. No, that's really true. Suddenly, um, they're expected to be uh, lexographers, <laughs> and um, and then all of a sudden. You, well, I know I get really nervous whenever I do it, 
and then all of a sudden we're entirely reliant on uh, on you to make us look good and so the power shift is just kind of like completely different it's not like yeah, yeah. that's that's really interesting i think this has come out all wrong because it makes me sound really blasé and i promise no, i'm it really not it doesn't. it doesn't okay um it's just it's just that it's funny because i've been reading um uh, a book by um greg jenner if you know him he's brilliant on twitter called dead famous and it's <sighs> a history of celebrity and you know people have been famous for all sorts of weird reasons and uh, and it just it just kind of pierces that whole bubble and I think it's because I don't want to be part of it I don't want to be and I know I wouldn't be anyway because I'm not that kind of person but flying below the radar is where I'm really comfortable and you know that Nick um so for me I kind of assume that other people are you know quite similar and and so it's not like this wonderful meeting with somebody who's absolutely amazing I've been or, or in awe of all my life it's just like another really lovely person who I get to talk to and learn loads from um so it's not blase I'm not being blase about them I think I'm just being blase about the whole idea of celebrity no, I, I think that's something that happens quite naturally I I do stand up and so does Nick and I think that there's lots of people within that world that growing up I would have been completely in awe of but then when you do shows and things and you might do a show with someone from tv or someone you've admired for years and years then when you meet them in real life you talk to them and you go oh of course they're just you're just talking to someone you've met yes they're exactly become iconic in that way and they yeah. become real people so yeah. you're, you're not talking to the icon in terms of the, the word icon i mean there susie to mean the the sort of image of them yeah yeah you. very good Thank you. You just meet them and you're just having a chat with them because you're in a dressing room with them or whatever. And yeah. then you go out and do a show and you're essentially in that case, you realise you're both doing that evening. You're both doing the same job. Yeah. You realise that you've got a lot more in common in those moments than you did watching them on TV or whatever. Uh, it's completely right and I think if you so if you before either of you went on stage and you felt really nervous would you be more nervous about what those people that you've admired for years think about you or the reception that the audience in general will give you I to be honest I would like them to like me because yeah. I'm desperate for <laughs> to, to like me I think well, yeah your peers to approve of you yeah to go, oh, that was good or something. And if someone says, if someone I've admired for a long time says, oh, that was funny, or I liked that thing you said about X, Y, Z, I'd be going, oh, thanks very much. And I'd be absolutely chuffed to bits. More so than these these muggles in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I remember when I did, uh, I, did my, I did my third ever gig, like my third ever gig, and I had a friend that ran, um, what's the one in Greenwich called? Which what? one? Oh, you're up the creek. Oh, yeah. I did a gig down up the creek, and my friend ran up the creek, and someone had dropped out, and he had a, a, um, a warped idea of how how many gigs I'd done. I'd done three, and then I, all of a sudden I was on supporting Simon Amstel, <gasps> and um, I had to do 20 minutes, and I didn't really have 20 minutes, and, uh, and I was in the dressing room, and I was just so out of my depth that I didn't even realise it. And Simon Amster was really nervous. <laughs> ah! And he'd just been on holiday, and he he just got back from holiday, and he and he was obviously huge because he was doing like buzzcocks and everything at the time. And uh, I was just in a dress. It was just me and him, and um, and he was really nervous. And there was like a whole crowd of people, 
and then uh, I think my friends who were all builders had come to see me and I'd, I was sort of like had up until then just been unemployed or working in uh, admin or something like that yeah I went on and my mates who were all builders were like they'd just seen me and I used to sleep on their floor and stuff like that and they saw me on stage and then Simon Anstel came over and he uh, repeated one of my uh, punchlines to me in front of them <laughs> and they were all like like Aww. but like the fact that Simon Amstel um he did that to me it was my third ever gig and it was like it, yeah I was shit every single gig after that for a year <laughs> but it was like it was like three days what a moment it was an amazing moment but also it kind of like you realize I think I said something to him he said I'm, I'm really nervous and I said well you'll get by on name recognition for at least five minutes <laughs> and, um and he went like huh <laughs> like <laughs> like it's true but then you actually have to be funny and he smashed it he was he was incredible but it was like it was a third of a gig where you, where you suddenly realize there's that guy off the telly and in actual fact he's um he's just like me if not um if not actually more self-aware because he he knows what is expected from him yeah, and that's, it's the expectation, isn't it? It's like suddenly finding on Twitter that somebody amazing has followed you and you just think, wow. And it's because of one tweet. And then you just think, but then the rest of what I tweet is not going to be that good. And then they're going to unfollow me or they're just going to be really disillusioned as if they really cared. But every it's that tweet, kind of... Yeah. Uh, every tweet is an, is an, another tweet to keep them interested now. You've got audience <laughs> exactly. one. And you just think, you've got to make this one count. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's exactly it. And I was so nervous about going on Twitter for a long time because I hate the idea that someone disapproves of what I've said or just thinks this is boring or whatever. And um, it was Rachel Riley who persuaded me to do it. She said, you know what, I think it will really toughen you up. And I think she was right. I mean, I don't get loads of trolls or anything because all I do is words. But I almost think that you use Twitter exactly correctly which is your educational and entertaining. It's like, I mean, this just sounds, sounds like I'm gushing. <laughs> That's really nice. It's honestly, it's purely because I don't want to put myself out there. It's the whole thing of, you know, and I guess in a way, you know, what I can't get my kids interested in, I hopefully will get other people interested in by tweeting, hey, did you know that smile of rain on hot earth is called petrical? Um, so... Thank you. I, so I think it's a slightly cowardly way to use Twitter, but no. also one that suits me. No, I think it's actually really respectful, and um, I don't think it's cowardly. I think it actually does something that a lot of other... Uh, Twitter's just a minefield, you know? I know. I, I, know. I, I, I try and use it for basically... Uh, uh, I, I tell people about shows that I've got coming up, and then yeah. keep, keep people interested in between then. I'll write dick jokes. And, and, and then when it gets to sort of like, over the last, over the last week, I've written um, a couple of basically, uh, uh, a couple of political tweets, which are more to do with just human decency and, you know, just a complete disbelief of stuff. But I tend not, I tend not to, I tend just to kind of like um, keep my personal life out of Twitter. And some people yeah. are all about their personal life. Yeah. Find that it creates uh, so much divide and so much anger that, in actual fact, you 
I've got like very positive messages in my live shows and when people come to see them it's kind of like that's where I talk about my stuff yeah but if you put people off before they've even got a chance to see what your message is then I think that I think that Twitter ends up kind of like eating itself whereas what you're doing is you're kind of like uniting people by like these positives which is you're teaching people about the history of the language that they're using and it's kind of like there's no kind of like barriers to that it's kind of you're uniting people you know and you say it's a cowardly thing but in actual fact um it's it's i think it's a very difficult i think it's quite difficult to um to not personalize twitter and uh and, and, and the instinct to just tell people that you don't agree with to fuck off yeah exactly i no, i bite my tongue quite a bit but the mute button is is a friend let's face it and um, i'd rather i'd rather mute someone than block them me too because when you block them then it's like a badge of honor yeah They've got the pleasure and they'll talk about it for ages. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. But I think, I, think you, I think you nail it. Sorry, Nathaniel. I could, you, you're a lot quieter, actually, than Nick, so I'm going to oh, just turn you up. That's all right. Do you, use, do you use Twitter on your phone or do you use it on a desktop? Um, both. Normally on my phone. Because I find if I do it on my phone, though, because of, like, the predictive text, I've had it. <laughs> It's actually misspelled things. Later times. It's the wrong type is right. It's used it with it's without an apostrophe when it should yeah. have. And yeah. I get furious when I do it because I I know I I know the correct way of doing it, but it's yeah. done it wrong. But if you make a spelling mistake on Twitter, do you then get hundreds of people piling on and saying, "Oh, it's actually spelt like this." Um, I t- I have to check them and check them and check them and check them. I did um I did podcast called something rise with purple which i we abbreviate to um srwp and loads of times i put swrp which people love to tell me about but generally i think i've been all right but i have deleted a tweet or two where i just think actually that just came out all wrong um and then you feel guilty for the people who actually liked it and all that stuff so yeah you're right it is it is a minefield but you know i think a good thing to do sometimes is just tweet and run podcast Susie so this is something rhymes with purple yes what does rhyme with purple um, well very few things there's purple which is part of a horse's backside um, and there's also herple which is to walk with a limp after a long walk particularly um, so there are a few things and it was one of those ones where we just sat around for ages trying to think of a good title and in the end that one just sounded quite fun what's, um, the, what's the basic concept for the podcast um, well, like all podcasts, it's a bit like the, you know, it's a bit like sitting in a studio before the red recording button comes on. So it's just me and Giles Brandreth and we're totally different people, which is a kind of odd mix in a way, um, talking about words. So we choose a theme for each episode and then we just, you know, Giles says, oh, where does this come from? And then he'll throw in a name dropping story or um a theatrical anecdote and then ask me again where this comes from and I will chip in and it just um do you know I really he, he said to me I think this is where you are of all the things that you've done you are the most you in this and I think that's kind of true because we just rattle on and you'll, you'll know with a podcast you've got no sense really of other people listening um and then and then not, but then you get too late. <laughs> then you get this lovely collective of people who write in and they become this sort of wonderful gang of people that just generally share 
what you you know share views that you do or share the passions that you do and stuff and that and that kind of community spirit is really lovely as well so it's that kind of two-pronged thing which i really like i think we have very different fans <laughs> probably our fan mail this week was absolutely horrific it's horrific oh. <laughs> can we, can um, me an example I'd be too embarrassed somebody told us how much they like rimming Someone oh I see what you mean so they weren't kind of telling you guys that you were really boring they were just oh no like sharing everything <laughs> they're trying to be uh, they're trying to outweird us but they, they succeeded very quickly <laughs> and then do you read these out on the next one yeah we read them okay. out okay well there you go and then you'll get more our yeah. producer puts them up and we read them as live and then, what, and then we're, we're terrified and we think, I mean, surely she's supposed to protect us from <laughs> people that write in. But yeah. she, she puts it up and makes us read it out loud and it encourages them. Uh, okay, I, I can't wait to hear some of these. Charles <laughs> um, is someone I think of, sorry to interrupt, but Charles is someone I think of as he would have been someone in that sort of, he's, he's an almost, um, he's one of those dictionary corner countdown people that I very much associate as being like a, a regular dictionary corner person, right? Is that yes. how you met him? Yes, that's exactly how I met him. So he, he, like, he'd been there way before I was and um, sat there, as everyone knows, and is one of his silly jumpers. And Giles is more than anyone I've ever met able to kind of summon a fact normally a bogus fact out of thin air so like a word will come up on countdown um say it was frankincense right and he would say oh yes this was coined in 1792 by the archbishop of Canterbury um and then go on about the origin and I think wow you know for, for about a year or two I was really impressed and then the more familiar I got with the dictionary the more I realized it was just total bullshit um but he just <laughs> sounds so convincing and he and he knows it and we had um uh we had a million downloads on our, our podcast which was brilliant and we were just about to go on um gmtv and in gm well, we were talking to ben shepherd i think it was and suddenly we had two million downloads apparently and i looked at charles and he looked at me and he said yes we've just reached two million downloads and i came off afterwards and i said it's actually it's one million and he said, oh, it doesn't really matter. But what was amazing was that that kind of myth perpetuated itself. So now we do have two million dollars, which is really nice. But it's that kind of complete credibility. I think I think he just got the number wrong, but it just it becomes self-fulfilling. And I just I guess that's maybe how politics works. I'm not sure. Um, it becomes self-fulfilling in terms of downloads, but it doesn't change the origins of frankincense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That's the thing. It doesn't. But as far as I know, the office didn't used to get lots of letters. Um, saying we've had three million downloads. Go so for we'll it. We'll just have it. Exactly. Great. Exactly. Um, but the other thing about Giles is he is genuinely a lovely, lovely person. And we may be miles apart politically and, um, you know, in terms of he he loves celebrity. I kind of run away from it. And and yet it's I, I just love them dearly because he's just his also his knowledge of poetry is second to none. Every single day during lockdown, he has been learning a poem in the space of like five ten minutes and then delivering it to twitter um and and i love that about him i love the fact that he is always always trying to learn more even if it's not the origin of frankincense charles brandeth always strikes me as someone who always sounds like 
he's playing just a minute. <laughs> does, yeah. He's not on just a minute. Yes, that's really true. But then don't we all do that? I think I did. Um, I did a voiceover for a Cats Down episode, and I was in the just in the sound studio with with Rachel. Um, so we were pulled out of makeup, went to the sound studio, and we were chatting before. And then suddenly the sound came on. And I had to deliver this line that I think Jimmy was going to have. Um, uh, he was going to wear a helmet that allowed him to read people's minds. It was a mind reading hat. And anyway, so I delivered my line and Rachel just stared at me and she said, you never, ever sound like that. And I had no idea that I put on this broadcasting voice. But so I think we all do it, don't we? Right. Yeah. I'm, not sure, I don't, I'm not sure I do it on podcast. But I oh, no, I, I meant, I meant for Josh Randolph more that he sort of taught, he's always giving that kind of oratory kind of story, yeah. even when he's like just talking about on any occasion. I think like that's going true. Into, uh, going into some huge myth of whatever he's asked to talk about. I think that is true. The, the last anecdote that he told me about where that was completely true was he was saying um, the one thing his grandchildren love him for is that he always buys them a magnum. So during lockdown, he's been ordering box loads of magnums and he throws them out the window at the grandkids. <laughs> I just thought that was very sweet. But yeah, it was still delivered. You're right in that in that voice. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I love him to bits. You will have seen, so if you started on Countdown in 1992, mm. you've seen every different presenter and combination of, so you would have started with Richard Whiteley and Carol Vorderman. Carol, yeah, it's Richard and Carol, and I owe them, you know, just a huge um, amount of, of thanks, really, because it was, they wanted to build, um, to have a kind of full-time team rather than have the sort of rotating Lex Cogman thing, and I was just there, Definitely the right time. I mean, I, I genuinely didn't, that wasn't the path that I chose. I went to work at Oxford University Press and they published the dictionary that we use on the show. And the, my boss said, I think you should go on. I'd only been there about a week and I resisted quite for quite a long time. And then finally he persuaded me to go on. Um, and, and, you know, that it was, yeah, it really was thanks to them that I, I got the gig. So I'll, I'll always remember that. And, I'm, you know, obviously we'll always miss Richard. He was, um, yeah, also lovely, incredibly loyal, actually very gentle. Did you ever meet him, either of you? No. No, no, you're too young. But he was, um, yeah, he was a good guy and also incredibly incisive. So he was a brilliant political interviewer. Um, who I think he said in his lifetime he'd interviewed every single prime minister apart from Harold Wilson or something. Um, wow. So he had the yeah, that other side to him, um, you know, as well as the bad ties and puns and things. And then yeah, Des Lynham came along. Ah, oh, lovely Des. Yes, what a smooth smoothie Des was. Um, that was sort of like a left field choice. Um, do you think? I don't know. Well, he was only known as sports, wasn't he? That's true. But then so was, so was Jeff Stelling. And that, you know, that worked really well. Um, yeah. I'm not sure Des actually really enjoyed Countdown. Um, he, he was always, I think when he wasn't scripted, he was just one of the funniest presenters we've had. Um, but I, I think he just, for me, I think he maybe didn't ever feel totally comfortable in that role. Um, but not that he wasn't good at it, and the viewers absolutely loved him because you can't love Des. But he, yeah, as a part, I never felt that his joy was able to come across on Countdown. Um, I think that would have been the trickiest time to do it, though, right? Because yeah, following of course. Richard, Richard Whiteley, he's the only person who's done it. He's the only host you've had. Yeah. So constantly being brought into a show where you're replacing someone 
who was this much loved person who was so familiar to people and yes. had been at that point for 10 years yeah and the only presenter and then to step into those shoes I think anyone would have had it would have been tough for anyone I think I think that's really true you then have you have two people that have done it so then you become yeah three or one of four yeah no I think that's really true and to be you know I think Des took it over absolutely brilliantly and and the viewers genuinely really loved him um and yeah he just he just wasn't there for long enough and then we had Des O'Connor who was such a gent um (laughs) just such a gent and he his favorite part I think was the live audience and because because give Des an audience and he will just start singing and start entertaining he's a (laughs) born entertainer so trying to drag him into you know sit into the presenter's chair and he was kind of singing or I don't know, making silly knicker jokes with the audience was actually quite hard, but I think that was the bit that he loved most. Um, and then Jeff was up for anything, Jeff Sterling, um, whether it was wearing a leotard or, uh, you know, just being stupid and ultimately professional and that he would prepare and prepare and prepare. So the night before every studio block, he would be up till one o'clock in the morning writing his notes and stuff. Um, so, you know, consummate professional from that point of view. And, and now, then we got Nick, and now we have amazing Nick, who loves words. So that is just amazing for me because, um, you know, I have someone who, who kind of genuinely wants to learn stuff. And not that the others didn't, but I think for, for him, he knows the classics. He, again, he knows his poetry. He's a bit like Giles. He can just reel something off. Um, and I'm also quite mischievous. I, I think only in the last kind of few years have we really seen the very mischievous side of Nick Hewer. Um, was was Countdown the first ever programme to be shown on Channel 4? It was, yeah, the very first. I think Richard. one of the things, because obviously we've done, uh, Cats does Countdown together, one of the things that I think is so incredible about Countdown is what, like, an, like a, it's almost like a bulletproof format. It's um, And it's it's got like a multi-generation appeal where I think young people can watch it, students watch it, uh, retired people watch it, it's got this like this incredible format that has kind of um, lasted for all yeah. this time. But also one of the things is when, um, I think, uh, before 8 Out of 10 Cats started doing it, they did sort of like a series of 8 Out of 10 Cats specials. Mm-hmm. Or they did like some Channel 4 takeovers, where I think they did 15 That's right. one. The mashups, yeah. And they did um, Deal or No Deal, because I did yeah. that. Yeah, so did I. It's freezing yeah. in that studio. Do you remember? It was in that little warehouse. In Bristol. Yeah. God, so cold. Yes. It was weird. Yes. And then they did uh, and then they did Countdown. And Countdown was the one format where it was just like, it's, I think Countdown, eight, I think 8 out of 10 cats does Countdown is better than 8 out of 10 cats. Because 8 out of 10 cats is kind of like inconsequential where there's sort of a game, but it's really a, just a, a vehicle for... Um, uh, for material, for comedian yeah. material. Whereas, even if you're not into the comedy, you can still play the game. I think yeah. it's, I That's just so think true. it works so well. That's really true. And you only have to look at the audience. You know, they're laughing their heads off, but actually they've got their pens and papers and are trying to crack the... Everyone's trying to do the conundrum. It's, yeah. It, and it, it just brings... I think that's what's really great... I just think that's what's really great about it. Like, maybe there's that middle... Um, there's that middle generation of people where you've got like students and then you've got retired people and yeah. then Cats does Countdown sort of like fills in that middle gap where it sort of like yeah. brings that audience in. But it's just such, um, 
it's such an absorbing game that uh, you, all you need to do is attach a couple of other elements to it and then it becomes like this late night show. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know. It, it is all about the format and, and generally it's not about the presenters, even though we've talked about all the brilliant ones we've had, but um, it is about the format and it, and it is how it kind of just sucks you in and you can't help yourself. Um, and we're so lucky because it was brought over from the French programme, um, Les Chiffres et les Lettres. So they have a really serious version of Countdown. Um, well, I think the person who does my job is called Le Prof, um, <laughs> I think. And um, it's very, there's not many jokes in that version of Countdown. Anyway, and this brilliant couple, Marcel and Jeannie Stelman, just brought it over and sold it to um, ITV for Channel 4. So... Um, yeah, and, and, you know, the only award I think I've ever been part of in my entire life is the Guinness Book of Records for the longest, the, the, not the, the longest running quiz show, but the one with the, mo- the highest number of series I think we got. So did that they, was cool. Did they bring the, uh, the, the countdown ticking clock theme over from the French one? Um, yes. Yeah, so the whole format is pretty much the same, but ours is, is a lot jazzier. <laughs> people who kind of go from cats down to watching afternoon countdown would find it really um uh, funny to call that version jazzy but yeah have a look at the french version and you'll see <laughs> yeah do you, do you find yourself um uh do you still learn different words all the time or do you know them all Oh, God, no, I definitely don't know them all. So behind you, behind my Zoom screen, I've got the Oxford English Dictionary behind me. Um, and that's just that's just up on my screen the whole time because, you know, generally I will I'll kind of be just sitting thinking nothing, having a cup of tea in the morning, and then just think, God, I have never in my life wondered where that word comes from. And, and then I'll just look it up. I've got it on my phone as well. So now that dictionaries are online or on your phone screen, and, um, you know, the world is your oyster, it's brilliant. So I'm always learning new words. And the one that I learned quite recently, um, well, it's really old and it's called um, Ipse Dixitism, which I know is a bit of a mouthful. And Ipse Dixitism is um, accepting something as fact because someone somewhere said it. Um, and it goes all the way back to um, followers of Pythagoras who just said, if the master said it, it must be true. And so it kind of links into the whole fake news stuff. What's that, that word again? Ipse, dic- Ipse dixitism. See, can you make a dick joke out of that one? Ipse dixitism. Yeah. No, but what I was literally just about to say was, I imagine that when you play Scrabble with people, people just uh, Ipse dixitism. Uh, <laughs> that would be an amazing, but it won't be in the Scrabble dictionary, that one. That is no, in... But with you... Yeah. So if you're playing Scrabble and someone puts a word down and you could just basically say, that's not a word, that doesn't count. <laughs> yes. Or you could make up a word and people would just take your word for it. I know. I have that's... done that on occasion. <laughs> I, I tried that's that. That's Ipsodixitism, right? That, that is Ipsodixitism. That's really true. I, I am an Ipsodixit. <laughs> um, but... Not in my book. <laughs> but um, I'm actually pretty bad at Scrabble um, because I never play it partly because people expect me to be brilliant and when I'm not I feel like I failed and also because um, they use a completely different dictionary so I guess I figure I'm going to get confused with the countdown dictionary and it's not about length it's about you know all the special letters and so to avoid confusion I don't play it very often and Colin Murray if you know Colin um, to this day has got his winning Scrabble sheet against me 
because he was so proud of the fact that he completely <laughs> trounced me. Um, but to be honest, that it wasn't that hard. I'm not, I'm not that great at Scrabble. But you're well, right, I could bluff my way through. Yeah, I mean, you could win every single game. You just need to have more faith in your ability to lie to people's faces. <laughs> I've done that in them. You know, have you ever played Double? What's Double? Have played Double? No, okay. Well, Double is a kind of, it's a brilliant kids game where... Is that the one with the thing in the middle that you push down? Oh, that's frustration, isn't it? I thought there was a word game with the plastic dough. Oh. That's Boggle. That's Boggle. Yes, Boggle's good as well. No, Doggle's got nothing to do with words. It's all about pictures and trying to match pictures on your card or one element on your card with um, loads of kind of visual elements in the middle. And I haven't explained that very well, but I have bluffed my way through that entire thing by just shouting out, you know, lightning. Um, oh, I can't even remember what else is on there. Um, dog and just just basically pretending that I've seen identical things and just claiming all the cards. So I have done that. So it's not beyond me to lie my way through Scrabble. But that's not using any of your life skills. That's just you lying. Exactly. But it's quite fun. I mean, I, I, you do it as a, as a setup and then no. you do it after. No, Susie. <laughs> no. No, that is something I've taught my kids. But they have done that. And it just, it makes people laugh. But you can only do it once. Oh, God. You kids to lie. Well, only on that particular occasion. <laughs> this is going horribly wrong. all the time. Do you do you also just have the thirty seconds to come up yes. with the longest word? Okay. Yes, we only have thirty seconds, um, but it's not just me, right? So, um, I remember <laughs> I remember the news of the world um, when it existed years ago had me on page three below Britney Spears which sounds really good, but it wasn't. It was exposing me for having an earpiece that said on Countdown and that, you know, we were all cheating and that kind of stuff, which was just rubbish because we had always been open to the fact, open about the fact that I had an earpiece. I did every other lexicographer. So our producers and our directors are absolutely brilliant at, um, at Countdown. So if they get something, they will feed it down. But that doesn't mean I don't get my own. And most of the stuff that I read out are the ones that I came up with. But, you know, I will never say I got if it wasn't mine. Um, so it's not, it, it's, it's a kind of, it's a team thing because I'm also trying to preempt what the, or predict what the contestants might come up with. But we do only have that 30 seconds and we don't use anagram finders or anything like that. It's all brain power. But, that's, but that also says something about the people that read news of the world as well, isn't it? That, you know, it, of course it's telly. It's telly. Yes. You know, yeah, I don't know. I've I've done telly in the past, and I've said something about the fact it's been edited, and people go, "Oh, see, comedy's <laughs> edited," and you go, "Yeah, telly's edited." What yeah. do you think you're watching? It's not like a live stream, and you know, it's crazy. You're always very generous as well. Like, um, so I'll be sat next to you, and then you'll come up with an amazing word. And you'll give it to me. And I'll be like, <laughs> oh, wow. And then I do extra special. And I say, I think uh, what they, they could have had the word lun. <laughs> and I would have missed it. But you, you, you were right there. You snatched it and gave it to me. So, uh, yeah. I, remember, I remember giving Danny Dyer, when he was sitting in Dictionary Corner, um, I, I, I've given, you know, I write out the, the letters always on the top and then I come up with my words underneath it. So he was supposed to look at the words underneath, right? But he read out the entire sequence of letters and gave it some kind of East End accent and said, <laughs> yeah, you could have had that for nine. I said, those, those are the letters. <laughs> you, uh, it was brilliant. Do you do a thing where, because I know there's lots of things where people sometimes put the letters in a circle. Do yeah. You certain, do you have other tips that might help us? 
they get bigger um, yeah it's a good question um i do sometimes write the mountain in a circle but even after all this time i haven't got a favorite way of doing it i tend to just write them down as they come along and then desperately i see a word and then desperately hope for the the right letters to kind of come off come up and finish it um always look for adverbs always look for the ly's if you can um you know ing um re at the front of a verb um the thing that i am not brilliant at even after all this time is compound words so you know words that are two things put together um i often miss those i often am looking for one kind of long sequence but um yeah and also i do genuinely have really bad days where i just my brain just is not complying at all and uh, and then i have you know then i have good days but rachel is amazing because she is so competitive with herself if she can't come up with a numbers round she will go with it she won't she, she'll be completely zoned out from the rest of the show because she'll just be sitting there trying to trying to figure it out before the end so i'm not quite as competitive as that but i do get i get cross with myself when people on twitter say oh look you didn't get that but i always think actually do you know what that's brilliant because it's made them feel really good and that's what the game's all about whereas if it was all automated and we got the longest word every time it would be really boring i think i think i one of my all-time favorite jokes I saw an episode of Countdown, and yeah. it was Tom O'Connor, <laughs> and his joke was, uh, I saw someone doing a crossword on a train the other day. I said, seven ups lemonade. <laughs> my favourite. That, that is my so Tom. Tom, like Des O'Connor, was another person. Maybe they, maybe they were related, because they were, they were just entertainers all the way through. So the moment there was even a two-second lull, in recording they would be just you know talking to the audience coming out with their with their sort of um repertoire of jokes and tom was just uh, he was amazing he just never stopped as you probably know um yeah i don't know his, his mind i don't know how, how he remembered all those jokes i think find, do you find the tone between uh regular countdown and cat stars countdown is uh, incredibly different in the studio Weirdly, no, apart from um, you, you don't have the, well, you do sometimes have the nerves of the contestants, but John doesn't get, tend to get nervous, nor does Sean. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think I do, because it is the format again, isn't it? It's kind of that, it's that sort of comfortable arrangement of the clock. You've got the reassuring set, um, and... I don't find it that different. I mean, obviously the register is really different and the content is really different. And you will know, we just talked about editing, that in fact, we record, what, two and a half hours each show and then they cut back, especially if Johnny Vegas is on with there for about four and a half hours. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, by the time they've got to me, I think quite often we're what, if, if you were sitting next to me, we, we would have had, what, 45 minutes of comedy before then? I think it's awful. Because we... Yeah. I don't get to play the game. I've never played the game. No, you've just so, you've been sitting next to me, which I love. I love it, yeah. right? But um, but the, but the nightmare of it is that it takes them forty five minutes to introduce everyone. Yes. Then they play the game. So you're sat there for an hour. When you do dictionary corner, they come over you, and you haven't said anything yeah. for like an hour. And then they go right now, be funny. I know. Go, with no warm up. Yeah. 
you've got no go it you've not got not got a ramp to get into it and then yeah. you do it and then i'm always like shell shots immediately after it's <laughs> happened and i'm sitting there going <laughs> and you're going are you okay nick and i'm like yeah, i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> and then and then it happens again it happens like three or four times throughout the show where they just yeah, over to Dictionary Corner, it's Nick. And then, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And I think for the first few shows that um, that I did as well, I just, I got so nervous that I kind of reached a peak and then I started to go down in terms of nerves and all the adrenaline drops. So by the time he got to me, I was just spectacularly unfunny because I'm not, you know, I'm not a naturally funny person anyway. Uh, I'm only ever funny by mistake, I've realised. Um, so sometimes, that is so true, Nick. Sometimes I will really get a laugh and it will be in the car home that I realise I actually said something quite funny. Um, truly, I'm, I'm not, I'm being totally serious about this. But I think now I just realise I'm not there to be funny. So I don't feel quite so nervous. But there is still that, you know, he could say to me, Susie, we've got an American comedian on tonight. What's your favourite American word? And uh, yeah, not only do I have to think of an American word, but I have to be funny as well. And that is not easy. Yeah, imagine that for a job. It's awful. It's absolutely <laughs> I know. What awful. a gig. What a gig. But you, you get so nervous, and yet then <laughs> you suddenly stand on the desk and serenade me, belting out these kind of lyrics, and I can't put the two of you together. It's strange. <laughs> yeah, I but think I mean... Corner is, is the car, well, part of the, the cast-iron format of it. I always love that idea of just having someone else on who just before an ad break will come on and if they're an actor, they'll tell some sort of showbiz anecdote. Yeah. And if they're a comic, they'll tell you a joke. And I just think that's a really nice thing. It's like doing a little turn. It's like, come on and do your thing that you... I remember we were talking about Robert Hardy earlier. From oh. And I remember him on an episode of Countdown once telling an incredibly filthy showbiz <laughs> anecdote at 4.30 in the afternoon. Really? Yeah, and it just seemed like, surely this is inappropriate. <laughs> about a time he was on stage with diarrhoea. And I was like, surely. Surely <laughs> not. <laughs> um, it's a great format. Gloria Hannaford is like that as well. She just, she's so lovely and she's so elegant and you just expect her to tell this really kind of heartwarming story and then she'll, yeah, she'll tell some horrible sex joke again at tea time, which it won't be horrible. <laughs> it will be very funny, but it's just that it's, it's very unexpected. Um, yeah, Robert Hardy. I don't think I was on with Robert Hardy ever, sadly. Or with Stephen Fry, there are a few people that I missed out on. Yeah, there are lots of those kind of... There, there are people, again, like Charles Brandreth, who are sort of like, in that era, feel like they were regulars and you'd get them once yes. in a couple of weeks on doing a... Doing a Kenneth thing. Williams. Kenneth Williams was on all the time as well. I didn't meet him, but um, they had some amazing people on. Um, right. Well, that hour is gone, Susie. <laughs> OK. Thanks for having right? me. No, don't go, don't go, don't go! <laughs> No, right, we've got to play a game with you. Right, um, oh, okay. so your podcast is out. Let's just, let's do, uh, 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 what, what do you call it? Let's, what do you call it? Round it up, round, have a round up. Yeah, what are you, so what are you, what are you selling, Susie? We've got your... <laughs> what am I your, selling? We've got your podcasts. Yes. Um, uh, what rhymes with purple? Something rhymes with purple. Something um, rhymes with purple. Uh, what am I selling? Um, well, you don't what... have to be selling anything. What I would say was, as a as a birthday gift, last time I did um, uh, eight out of ten characters countdown, I got a copy of Susie Dent's Weird Words. Oh yes, which is for kids. Which is for kids. Which, which is, is an amazing book. Oh, but for kids. <laughs> Even for um, uh, 
cheaper than a kid's at heart, Susie. Uh, <laughs> it's never too uh, late to learn. It's never too late to learn. I know. It's a kind of multiple choice thing, though, isn't it? Um, there are a few Amazon reviews on that one where they just thought, great, I bought this as a word origin book, but imagine my disappointment when I discovered it was written for kids. It's like, uh, yes, it is actually listed as a children's book. But anyway, I'm glad that you liked it. I did. I loved it. Something Rhymes With Purple is available on all streaming platforms. And obviously you can see Susie on 8 out of 10. No, 8 out of no. 10. Countdown. But Countdown, just regular Countdown. You can see Regular Countdown, normal regular Countdown. countdown. I have got yeah. another book coming out, but not, not for a while. Not till the What's that, what's that yeah. called? It's called Word Perfect. It's <laughs> clever. It's got a double <laughs> meaning. Mm. You're amazing. Um, all right, Nathaniel, we're going to play a game with you now, Susie, called Better or Worse. Go for it, Nathaniel. Better or Worse is a game where you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. So you score points if you agree with me, essentially. Beginning with Mark oh. Ruffalo. But is Mark Strong better or worse than Mark Ruffalo, based on my opinion? Worse. Worse, he is worse. Is Mark Hamill better or worse than Mark Strong? Better. 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 Is Mark Wahlberg better or worse than Mark Hamill? Worse. Worse, yes, worse. Is Donnie Wahlberg better or worse than Mark Wahlberg? Worse. Worse. I'm going with Nick. Better. Oh. What? What? Don't like Mark Wahlberg. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Better or worse than Donny Wahlberg? Hey, Osmond. Oh, he's so lovely, Donny. Uh, and Jimmy. They've been on countdown. Uh, worse. Better, 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 better is oh, what okay. I meant. I meant better. Yeah, right. better. Well, there you have that. Um, Don Cheadle, better or worse than Donny Osmond? Better. Worse. I think maybe worse. Hmm. Don Johnson, better or worse than Don Cheadle? <laughs> worse. Better. Oh, uh, okay. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, better or worse than Don Johnson? Yes, better. Worse. Oh, uh, no, he really likes Don Johnson! <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson, better or worse than Don Johnson? Oh, no, I've done that, sorry. Chris Rock, yeah. better or worse than Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Better. Better. Yeah. Chris Pratt, better or worse than Chris Rock? Worse. Chris Platt, did you say? Chris Pratt, better oh, or Pratt. worse? Oh, Chris Pratt, yeah. Worse. Uh, yes, worse. Worse, yeah. Worse. I think that's pretty good. Seven. Nine? Oh. Seven. No. More than that. I thought it was more than that. It's it nine. Apparently it's a seven. Oh, God. I don't think it's a seven. I think there needs to be a recount. <laughs> I thought it was almost going to be a ten, except for is it like top. Is it like Top Gear? Is there a lead table? There yeah. is. So, oh. while we're getting a ring count, I, I don't think it was seven. I think it was at least eight, if not I nine. Think it was at least. Do that, and I'll have a count up, because I think you got most of these right. Okay, so, uh, if you scored a nine, you're in the same league as Tom Crowley, Tim Downey, Matt Goss, Nick Helm, Ironic, Chris, <laughs> Reese James, Marshall Julius, Ramesh Ranganathan, or an eight with um, Omar Boy, Paul Gannon, Nick Semyon, Naomi McDonald, Dan Shrow. Do you know what, though? This is a new season. Oh, so I can be no, the leader this week one. Do you know what? You can be the first. You can be the first uh, contestant of season three, and you scored how many, Nat? I thought it. I think it's eight, but I think Natalie is still saying seven. So yeah. maybe. Come on, Natalie, be nice. Let's say eight. I think it's eight. <laughs> I think it's an eight. I think it's an eight. Um, Susie, thank you thank for coming on our show. 
Thank you very much. Um, for I hope, hope you enjoyed it. Um, we can I've always love talking to you. Are you going to sing to me now? No. Oh. Um, we don't get paid enough on this to do that. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to say goodbye to you now, but don't leave, and then we'll say goodbye to you properly afterwards. All right. We might edit that bit out, or we might leave it in. Behind <laughs> the scenes, behind the scenes. Um, yeah, Susie, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, we didn't ask. Uh, so come, come. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Oh, no, hang on. What's your song that we're going to play out? Oh, yeah, my song. Okay, so this was um, early teenage years. Okay, this is me. I was a bit of a loner. I lived far away from all my friends. I used to kind of just take off on my bike and go and sit by the water. And I'd play this song, which is Joan Armatrading. Do you remember her? Me, myself, I. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye. Have a great Friday or podcast or whatever you're doing. Bye. You know I don't want someone to...